Chapter Four of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Four. The three of us, Beth, Tim, and I, drove to town again that afternoon. Ostensibly, we went to buy some swimming togs for me. Really, we went to see if we could spot any of the crew of that strange, too trim, too capable little ship. We had a bit of tea in the shop, drank a soda in the Greeks, and stopped in for a bottle of carbonated water in the town's dignified little bar. No sign of sailors, and no indication, in cue with our deft queries, that any had been that way. Queer, I ruminated, that ship needs more than just a captain and a mate. And if I know seamen, get them this close to shore, and they'll be hitting for a drink the first minute they can escape the ship. We drove back along the sea wall road. As we approached the cove, a single seaman on the deck of the ship looked up interestedly. He was tinkering with something that had once been part of an engine. As we came close, he waved energetically at us, and held up as if in amusement the part of the engine he was working on. Only one seaman at work, I puzzled, and he up on deck, where any passerby is bound to see him. We ate alone, the five of us that night, half a dozen times, Tim's uncle brought the talk around to our plans for the magnetic bullet. He praised us profusely for remarkable pioneering. He hoped we'd let him see how far we'd progressed. Perhaps he might be inclined to put a little of his own money into our experiments. Tim winced visibly when his uncle referred to his recently and oddly inherited money as my own. Tim and I refused to know what such obvious bait. On the other hand, the uncle refused to be annoyed at the way that we changed the subject and shuffled the conversation for a fresh deal each time he edged near talk about the magnetic bullet. After dinner, he disappeared under the helmsmanship of the valet, and Madame Leclerc, who said she had slept little during the storm of the preceding evening, retired to her room. Beth and Tim danced to the music of a magnificent recording instrument, danced as if their hearts were in it. Can you tell by the ease and grace with which people dance that they are in love? I slipped away during the course of one of their waltzes and headed for my bedroom. The light switch was near the door, and I flicked it on automatically, and gave everything that swift, reassuring glance that is characteristic of most men in a strange room. I laughed a little at the nervous jitterness that made me think that someone had been in the room since I'd left it. Laughed, that is, until I happened to look toward the mirror which topped my dressing case. There, carefully folded and shoved into the mirror, was a scrap of white paper. I pulled it out and read it eagerly. The writing was in those childish characters always employed by people who are trying to disguise their handwriting. The wording was brief, but very compelling. Talk freely of your plans, but hide them under your tongue, and with your shrewdest ingenuity, the archer of Agincourt. I know the message sent me bounding across the room to the closet, into which I had flung my briefcase. I pulled out the case and opened it in swift survey. No matter how careless a man may be, he has an extra sense that lets him know when his personal things have been tampered with. I knew at once that the briefcase and the precious plans had not been touched. I was fingering the note and clinging to my briefcase when Tim rapped on my door. I tossed him the note, which he devoured in a glance. Friend or foe? Truth or a fake? I demanded. Tim sat on the edge of my bed, looking hard at the note. He shook his head in bewilderment. How can we tell? Well, I demanded savagely, who's interested in our plans? That's what I want to know. Besides your uncle, that is. And why is he trying to pump us? 
Tim flashed off the ceiling light, disappeared into his room, came back with drawing paper and other drawing equipment in his hand, swept everything off the small writing table, and over his shoulder barked at me, his superior officer, mind you. Get out those plans. I got them out with an unaccustomed docility. So, I said, in heavy-tongued irony, just to make it simpler for the thief, we'll have two sets of plans that they can select from. Watch, was all Tim answered. I watched, and as I did so, his plan dawned on me with belated clarity. He was copying all our specifications, our formulas, our equations, but he was making them all just sufficiently wrong to throw the person who might find them completely off the trail. It would be only after the model was worked out and tried that the hoax would be realized, unless, that is, the thieves were experts in half a dozen branches of science. Bully boy, I said, patting him lightly on the shoulder. It was late when he was finally finished, and this time he switched out all the lights. Into my briefcase he inserted the carefully folded fake plans. Then he placed the briefcase in the top drawer of my dresser. He locked the drawer and handed the key to me. The house is full of duplicate keys, he said. Then he unfastened the top of my talcum powder tin and balanced the tin against my clothes brush. A slight jolt such as the opening and closing of the drawer will cause the powder box to slip. Then even if it is placed upright again, we'll find a slight coating of talcum on the dresser. I nodded approval. Next he walked over and pulled the window shade down its full extent. Hold it until I tell you to let go, he said. Holding the true plans, he climbed up onto the window seat. Carefully he laid the plans flat against the shade. Let go, slowly, he ordered. I released the shade gently, holding onto the cord. The tight spring pulled the curtain up rolling as it moved, the plans tightly around the cylinder on which the shade wound. When the curtain was halfway up and level with the other shades, Tim called out, Enough, and clambered down again. Smart fellow, I approved. Though we slept soundly that night, it was not until I at least had prayed with the fervor and sincerity I had seldom evinced in the course of my life thus far. With the moderately early dawn I was up, awakened by the sound of voices in the garden below. I meandered over to the window, and from the shadow of the heavy drapes watched the scene. But it was a scene that called for no secrecy. On the contrary, it was a little drama that I felt was produced for my entertainment and edification. The valet was wheeling Tim's uncle out on the lawn. Captain Smith and Mr. Johnson were talking loudly, as if they meant their voices, to cross the garden, or reach my room or Tim's. "'It will take us another three days,' the captain said. "'It's a bad break, but we'll good it right enough.' You're most kind to be patient with us and have us in through breakfast, but in no time at all the engine will be right as rain, and we'll be on our way. Right as rain, another phrase learned from some novelist's page, I thought. Why did I have the certainty that this captain spoke in English that he handled too perfectly, with too bookish a precision? According to plan, we spent the morning on the badminton court. Tim and I. Madame Leclerc suddenly had need of her secretary's services, so Beth did not join us until lunchtime. Then, again according to plan, Tim and I played our new game. We talked quite freely of the magnetic bullet and the work we had done so far. Tim's uncle seemed delighted to be taken into our confidence. He praised us inordinately. He spoke with enthusiasm of the damage that this bullet would do to those dirty pirates who are attacking all the decencies of mankind. Even as we talked, I had the slow dawning sense that we had another listener. Each time the butler entered the dining room, I had the feeling that someone else was behind the swinging door that led to the kitchen and to the uncle's apartments. Finally, I said rather loudly, 
You see, Mr. Erkenwold, when we tell you these things, it is as to Tim's nearest relative. You can imagine how terrible might be the consequences if this information came to other ears. Of course, of course, the uncle agreed. Swiftly I leaped from my chair, and before anyone could speak, caught the swinging door and pulled it open. To other ears, I said furiously, like these. And in the doorway stood the valet. Only he did not stand. With all the calm self-possession in the world, he walked into the room, holding out towards Tim's uncle a packet of pills. "'Your medicine, sir,' he said, and then to all of us, with cynical subservience, "'if I am not intruding.' The uncle took the medicine without a word. It was the first time I had seen him take medicine at table, yet he obeyed as if he were hypnotized. Then, without another glance at us, the valet turned and walked out of the room. For all his appearance of guilt, I admitted to myself, I might have opened the door in timely coincidence for his walk from the uncle's apartment to the dining room. Yet I knew as well as I knew my own name that he had been standing and listening behind that door. After lunch, Tim, Beth, and I commandeered the small car. We rode toward the village again, and then drove past it, out toward the marvelous new airfield that was in the process of construction and then back along the line of protecting works that hemmed in the coastal defenses from the highway. We returned to the village which was sufficiently near to a much larger city to be of small attraction to the men at work on the field or the fort. Still no trace of sailors in the village. Again we took the road toward the anchorage or cove. Again we saw the man, one man, at work on the deck. As we slowed down to wave at him, he again gestured energetically toward the engine on which he was working. The rest of the crew, he shouted, gesticulating, are down below in the engine room, working. We waved back at him and drove along the seawall road for perhaps a mile or two, until the road filtered out in a thin trail that ended in a promontory that thrust out over the sea. Tim stopped the car. We lit cigarettes and settled back. Well, asked Tim, I knew he wanted me to lay the pieces out for examination. I sorted them rapidly in my mind. They seem to make no single picture, and yet... First of all, I said, let's confess that none of us trust your uncle. I repeat, a man who betrays his God and his faith. Well, faith and loyalty have a way of clinging together. If a man is disloyal one way, why not in another way? And his interest in our plans. That valet, said Beth, and I could feel her slight but unmistakable shudder. Where does the archer fit into this? Is he a ghost? Is he a man in masquerade? and that note from him to you, and his arrow in the heart of an unimportant tramp, or was he an unimportant tramp, I was thinking aloud, and why all that information volunteered us by the man on the ship? Why try to account to us for all the crew that, I duplicated the gesture by which the man had indicated the hold, the engine room, the rest are below, working. If they were below, working, would he have needed to throw us off by telling us what is no concern of ours? Luke, said Tim, you're as muddled as I am, but I'm mighty glad Beth and I are not fighting this alone. I smiled at him for that conjunction of himself and Beth. It was sweet, even in the midst of murder and the threat of death. When we were back in my room, I headed straight for the dresser. Everything was exactly as we had left it. Almost. For there was a faint dusting of talcum on the dresser top, just the thin coat that would have floated from the open top of a box that had been jarred and had fallen. I unlocked the drawer and pulled out my briefcase. Whoever had handled it had done a remarkably careful job. Only the betraying powder on the top of the dresser indicated any tampering. I turned slowly to Tim. 
A chance line from the uncle's letter that Tim had read to me suddenly germinated in my mind. Where was your uncle during the days following his accident and Chris's death? Tim shrugged. Frankly, I wasn't interested enough to find out. But that letter he wrote was from a hospital in... in Germany. The warning bell sounded in the hall below, and we turned to our dressing with our minds churning. Captain Smith and Mr. Johnson were already standing at the dinner table when we arrived. They bowed ceremoniously to the ladies, and Madame Leclerc launched forth into a monologue that threatened to carry us straight through the meal. But whatever the state of his affections for her, Tim's uncle had no intention of letting her monopolize the conversation. Deliberately, almost rudely, he cut her short and tossed the query to Captain Smith. Whereupon, with polished wit and a real sense of narrative, the captain took over. He told us high tales of the sea. He had been with the United States destroyers during World War I. He paid Madame Leclerc compliments, tossed us politely worded questions, and brought high good humor and practiced charm to the dinner table. He even made a brief play for Beth, until he saw how firmly her attention was riveted to Tim. During the course of the dinner, the second of the equinoctial storms began first to toy with the draperies, then to lash in fury at the lights, then obliged the butler and the valet to close the windows, then howl down the chimneys and scatter the sparks on the hearth. Finally it drove us into a little human cluster before the big living-room fire. The valet had on orders even pushed Tim's uncle in with the rest of us, almost as if he were afraid to be alone in that storm that battered raindrops like shrapnel against our windows and blasted at us with explosions of wind and lightning. We soon realized that it was taken for granted that the two officers would not even attempt to return to their boat that night. They gallantly protested the inconvenience their staying would cause. They bowed to the prospect of listening to Madame Leclerc sing arias from La Bohème and La Travillata. They even danced with Beth while old Orkenwold looked on in fake benignity, and young Orkenwold looked ready to murder and commit other deeds of swollen jealousy. Still by eleven o'clock we were in our rooms, and by twelve we had set in motion my crack brain plan. We were going down, storm or no storm, rain or no rain, to have a look at that ship. If there was just one man aboard, as we strongly suspected, he would be easy enough to handle. If there was a crew aboard, we might be in for trouble, and plenty of it. If there was no crew aboard, then where were they, and what were they doing? Raincoats were little enough use against that rapid fire of rain. Anyway, we wore the most observed of outfits, swimming trunks, mufflers around our throats, heavy shoes over woolen socks, raincoats, and storm helmets. We carried electric torches and two small wrenches we had taken from the car's tool chest. Thus apparelled and armed, we set off into the downpour, wondering whether we were heroes or fools. In my deepest heart, I suspected that we would be proved the latter. For a pair who were supposed to be deeply concerned with a spectral archer, we had certainly found ourselves on another chase entirely. It was a long jump from Egancourt to that slick little diesel-motored ship in the anchorage. Remembering how plainly the midnight visitor had shadowed us as he cut across the lawn, I led Tim through the shadow thrown by the heavy hedges, passing from clumps of trees to the deeper shadow of solid boxwood. I confess that as we came close to the summer-house, I had a little start of expectant fear. Would the archer suddenly appear? Was its arrow meant for Tim? We found the road heavy with mud and deeply rutted, but we plowed along, and the pounding sea to our left, and the blackness of arrow anchorage to our right. The water cut mercilessly through the openings in our coat, and drenched our already wet skins. Our boots became heavy with mud and muck, and we stumbled and fell against each other as we plodded our heavy way. Then Tim touched my arm, and together we leaned over the cliff. 
The wind seemed suddenly to pick up his coat and billow it out like a half-balloon. Tim careened back against me, gripping my arm. Down there, he indicated, is the cove. Let's wait for a flash of lightning. We had to wait only briefly. A sudden blinding flash showed us the amazingly calm waters of the cove, and riding the waters with hardly a swing or sway, the trim little ship was held safely by its anchor ropes. There's a way down, Tim said. We used to make it when we were kids. Evidently the officers of the ship have been using it. Dad wanted to put in concrete steps, but he never quite got around to it. He hesitated. Shall we leave our coats here? I shook my head. Our white bodies, clad only in trunks and boots, would gleam too clearly against the wet mud. The coats we wore were at least something of camouflage. That slip and slide down the cliff was an experience I should not want to repeat. But the path was less dangerous than, what with the rain and the wind and the mud, we might have anticipated. So after what seemed endless hours, we were on the solid rock that formed the base of the cliff and the boundary of the cove. Swim for it, said Tim, and we shed our coats and slipped silently into the water. Not that silence was necessary. The wind seemed to whip over our heads, loudly protesting its disappointment at its not being able really to disturb the waters of this landlocked cove. The rain beat about us, slapping the water up into our eyes. But we knew it was all for the best of luck, for there was no light on the ship except for two lanterns on the mastheads, and we had the happy hope that whoever manned the ship had by the rain and storm been forced down into their bunks. The ship's ladder swung close to the water. We pulled it down carefully, and mounted with all the caution we could muster. Hopefully we tried out our flashes against the palms of our hands. They glowed reassuringly. Yet even as they did, we knew that we dared not use them until we were sure that there would be no interference. "'Wait here. I'll take the forecastle.' I said, motioning toward the small sector evidently set aside for the crew. Not on your life, said Tim. It was time to restore discipline, and I restored it. Lieutenant Erkenwold, I commanded, you will hold this deck until my return, which will be immediately. I slipped down the narrow companionway, pushed open the closed door, and swaying with the slight movement of the ship, felt my way into what I knew must be the sailor's quarters. In my left hand, my flash, extinguished, in my right, gripped like an offensive weapon, the light wrench. Once inside the door, I stopped, all my faculties keyed above concert pitch. There was a vivid smell of whiskey, bad whiskey at that, but never had a perfume been more reassuring to my nostrils than was this smell. Whoever lay in that forecastle had been drinking heavily, and was now breathing with a stentorious wheeze that meant deep, perhaps drunken sleep. I listened intently for any variation of tone the sound of a second sleeper perhaps suddenly disturbed. There was none. So walking on the balls of my naked feet, I moved across the narrow forecastle to where the sleeper lay. My first impulse was to bind him while he was asleep, and thus safely leave him. My second impulse was to consult with Tim. As quietly as I had entered, I left the cabin and rejoined Tim on deck. Hurriedly I told him of my discovery. Then, suddenly, we heard uncertain footsteps behind us. The sailor had staggered out onto the deck. He was half turned away from us, and he was looking around him in bewilderment. Quickly, Tim and I stepped behind him, and while Tim pinioned the sailor's arms, I looked about for a rope. But to bind him, I thought, would be telltale evidence. We compromised by blindfolding him with a rag that I found on deck. Tim and I seemed to be thinking the same thoughts. With amazing speed, we had the man back in his bunk in the cabin, Tim holding him down. Though the man was still groggy, I decided on extreme precaution. I had brought the wrench with me. Now I brought it down on his temple, with emphasis. 
not in any sense dangerously, but with power to compel sleep, and the hope that, awakened from his drunken stupor, he would consider his strange adventure a sleepwalking nightmare brought about by too much bad liquor. He groaned once, pitched convulsively, and then breathed on a tone that seemed to drop a full octave. We removed the blindfold. Now almost certain that the place was otherwise empty, we swept the remaining five bunks with the flashlight. They were empty of human occupants, yet each of them was cluttered with an array of gear that indicated, beyond need of argument, that the crew numbered five seamen, in addition to the captain and the mate. We slipped back onto the deck to clear our heads and decide on our next move. Below, I suddenly commanded, and we cut across the deck to the companionway that led to the engine room. As we did, I stumbled and banged my toe villainously against something very cold and hard and brutal. Only with the greatest act of my will did I succeed in holding back a cry of pain. The engine they're tinkering with, Tim said, and together we sank down beside it. Ignoring the pain in my toe, I ran my hands experimentally over the engine. As I did so, I felt accumulating on my hands a film that spelled rust. Rust on the engine of a ship like this? I almost laughed in the darkness, and Tim almost laughed too as he sat back suddenly on his heels and let out a relieved gust of breath. Recognize it? An old automobile engine, even to the old-fashioned hand clutch. He was right, a decoy if there ever was one. A booby trap to distract the casual traveler who might from the top of the cliff look down at the ship's mechanic at work on, well, some sort of engine. We had reached the certainty that there was no one else on that ship. So we used our flashes as we plunged down the cabinway into the darkness of the well below. We found the engine room directly under our feet, spick and span and shining in every detail of brass and steel. And there stood the engine without the slightest sign of damage, ready and waiting for the command that would turn its wheel and send it smoothly through the sea. What in thunder? I muttered. That's just it. Not a thing wrong with it. Faking. That's what they're doing. Faking. But why? Then with the energy and thoroughness of moles canvassing a new tunnel, we ransacked that ship. We shot our light into every corner. We opened every chest that we could lay our hands on, and found that nothing was locked, except a few chests that probably contained logbooks or liquor. Only one thing puzzled us. In what was evidently the main saloon, we found one kit that could have meant nothing to a sailor, and that would ordinarily be purposeless on a ship. The kind of electrical wire that is used to string phones, they wrapped about a light drum. There must have been thousands of yards of it, unused, absolutely new. But why telephone wire? Why wires of any sort? And where were the rest of the crew, now that we knew the officers slept in arrow anchorage, and the one guardian, or decoy, or sentinel, or somnambulist lay heavily drunk with the double punch of his whiskey and the tap of my wrench? We climbed back on deck, found the ladder, dropped quietly over the side, and then the fury of the rain swam back to the shore. I looked at Tim in the darkness as he slipped into his coat and thrust his feet into his shoes. I rather hesitated before I put my own heavy boots on over that battered toe. Well, I whispered in the darkness, what did we get for this night's work? You got nothing. I got a toe that's yelling its blooming head off. Through the storm that seemed to howl mockingly about us, we retraced our shadowy way to Arrow Anchorage, through the dim, protecting shadow of the hedges, and finally to our rooms. Good night. I whispered, and I hardly knew whether Tim answered me, as I sank dead with exhaustion onto the bed. It was still dark when I felt someone shaking me furiously. Luke, the voice whispered. 
I sat up in bed and squinted my tired eyes to see that it was Tim leaning over me. "'What a fool I am!' he cried. "'What a fool!' "'If you mean a fool to wake me at this hour of the night,' I mumbled in frank acquiescence, "'correct. "'For forgetting why we used to play there all summer long when we were youngsters.' "'He wakes me up in the middle of the night to play kid games?' I mocked, addressing the unresponsive air. "'Played where?' "'In the cave,' he whispered. "'That's it. All the time I'd forgotten the one place we should have looked for them. In the cave.' And though at that hour of the night it didn't make sense, I was soon to find out that Tim had turned my eyes down the dark passageway along which lay danger and the solution of our mystery. End of Chapter 4 Recording by Maria Therese